Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, a frequent guest on our program, is Dr. Mike Walden. We like to have uh, uh, Dr. Walden on a lot because the economy is so important to so many people, and it affects everyone in a different way, but it affects almost everyone. So Mike has a way of of uh, explaining things for us that uh, I think uh, help us all in our planning as far as our our businesses and our homes and uh, our uh, personal finances as well. So anyway, uh, Mike, uh, of course, is a retired uh, professor at North Carolina State University, the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor Emeritus at, at the present time. So, Mike, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you back. Well, thank you, Don. I, I will say it's I'm, I'm like I'm in another career because I did retire, but I have a little consulting business and I, I'm staying nice and busy. So um, it's 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 more of changing careers. But the, the thing with my current job is I operate it. I run it. I can tell me how many hours to, to work. And if I want to take a nap at two o'clock, I do. So that's a, that's a, what's one of the big differences between what I'm doing now and what I did do for 43 years at the university. Loved, loved all 43, by the way. Great job. Well, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, it's interesting that you are in a situation where you can continue to do such interesting projects. And of course, you're always writing books and, and articles and things of that nature as well. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about something that was in the, the news quite a bit the last couple of weeks, and that was the debt ceiling deal. Uh-huh. Um, explain that and give us your feeling about whether or not it was a good deal or a bad deal. Well, uh, everyone knows, I think, that the U.S. government spends more than it takes in in taxes. So we perpetually are borrowing money, and that's been going on for for several decades. Um, It it was, I I don't know if it was two decades ago, uh, there was an agreement between the Congress and the president at the time uh, that uh, periodically the Congress would have to agree to borrow more rather than than simply saying, all right, we're just going to keep borrowing willy-nilly. So what that means is that periodically the Congress sets a limit as to how much the federal government can can borrow the total amount. And we reached that a couple uh, couple months ago. And there's always, always a debate and some some contention between the various parties over what to do. The president initially said he wanted what's called a clean debt ceiling increase. It is no conditions. Uh, the Republican-controlled House said, no, no, we want to uh, we want to change some things. And so uh, there was a standoff. Now, my view was, and I said this publicly to many people, there will be a deal. We will not get to the point where there, the debt ceilings increase, which raised the possibility that uh, the federal government could not borrow money enough money to pay interest on the national debt. Uh, that's called, that would be called defaulting. It would be like if you didn't pay your mortgage payment. That's not good. That's the, and everyone knew that wasn't good. That's why I thought there would be a deal. There was a deal. And depending on whether it's a good or bad deal, it's your perspective. Um, both the president and, and the House especially, um, I think it's a good deal for different reasons. Uh, there are, con- for people who are concerned about spending, there are some some constraints on spending. There there was a, what's changed. Uh, what's called the, the the baseline or the trajectory of of borrowing was reduced a little bit, and, and people maybe heard 
Congressional Budget Office say if uh, if that hadn't been done, there'd be an extra one, and I think it was one point six trillion borrowed over 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 ten years. So people who are worried about the debt may may like that. One of the big sources of contention was adding some work requirements for people who are receiving SNAP payments and Medicare Medicaid payments, um, and there were some other things. So it, it's not a final solution. It's a, it's a debt ceiling only for two years. So this will be replayed for the be the uh, at the beginning of the term of whomever the next president is, whether it's President Biden or someone else. Well, as you said, uh, unfortunately the. Uh federal government can has gotten into this habit and it's a habit that's almost impossible to break at this point in time and that is spending more than they take in um there are several things that i think the federal government is trying to do <laughs> that that may solve a little bit of it they're hiring a bunch of irs agents for example to see if they can't collect a little bit more tax but uh, uh that's a drop in the bucket also i would think uh uh, so how do we get out of this cycle at some point in time of borrowing more than we spend? Is is this permanent? And uh, is our debt uh, in real dollars and in, in real conditions better or worse than it was, say, 10 years ago? Well, let me answer, answer the second question first. Uh, it depends on how you measure it. We, if you look at the debt as percent of what's called GDP, which is the total size of the economy, uh, it is higher, and in fact, I think it's almost the highest ever, even even accounting for all the borrowing that was done during World War II. So that's bad. But on the other hand, if you look at it in terms of the interest payments on the national debt as a percent of GDP, uh, it's not at an all-time high, and that's because interest rates, although interest rates have been going up, they've been much, much higher in, in previous times. Um, my, I, I, you know, I wrote a book called Real Solutions that was published a couple of years ago, and I had, I had a whole chapter in there on the debt. My, my uh, advice in managing the debt would be for the federal government to take, um, uh, take the approach that states do. Take a state like North Carolina. We really have in North Carolina two governmental budgets. Uh, one is called the General Fund. And one is called, I'll say, I'll call it the capital fund. I don't think people on East Street call it that, but I'll call it that. The general fund is money spent for things like salaries, day-to-day um, -day expenses, um, payments uh, of, of, to retirees, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's money that is going to go out the window now and primarily be spent now. The capital budget is spending on long-term projects. So that would be your transportation projects, roads, bridges, et cetera, public buildings, uh, et cetera. And for those kind of projects, it actually makes sense, logical sense to borrow money. I mean, let, let me go back to home buying. If someone buys a house, most people don't buy a house with cash. They borrow the money. Now, actually that makes sense because you're gonna live in that house for many, many, many years. So you're spreading your spending and, 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 and enjoyment out of the house over many years, same way with a road or a bridge or, or something like that. So I would recommend, and this is not unique with me, many economists have for many years done, is if the federal government could get to the point where they could agree upon having two budgets, a, 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 um, a current budget um, where that has to be balanced, except in emergencies, we need some, some emergencies, air war or something, 
or and then a capital budget where you could borrow. Now, if if we went that route, uh, there would be a big fight or big discussion over well, what should be in the capital budget because people could say, well, education is a long run investment. We could, we should be able to borrow for that. Healthcare is a long run investment. Uh, and I get that, but I think the concept is one that we, I think it would be much, much better if we imposed that or, or adopted that, if you will, uh, that concept of two budgets. Businesses, indeed, Don, you probably do this. The businesses have two budgets, the current budget and the capital budget. Uh, if I think the federal government went that route, uh, we'd still have some debates and still have a lot of disagreement, but I think it would it would uh, provide a provide a framework that's much better than what we have now. Mike, what do you think the estimate is of taxes that should be paid that aren't paid for one reason or another? Oh, I don't have that at the top of my head. Uh, and, and, and some of that, Don, it's not as if people are uh, hiding money. I mean, there are some people who do that, but it's that people are taking advantage of the tax rules. So uh i can't give an exact monetary answer to that question but i think i think most of the alleged underpayment of taxes is simply because uh some people and usually they're higher income people but not always have good accountants good tax accountants who are able to find them loopholes well loop but not that they're illegal deductions and exemptions etc so uh i think if you want Again, this would be my recommendation, one of them that I have in, in my book, Real Solutions. I think we have too complicated of a tax system, um, uh, even at the individual level and certainly at the business level. If we were able to simplify it, I think it would help in a number of ways. Number one, I think would put more faith of people in the tax system because a lot of people are always going to think, oh, that guy, that person over there getting a break that I'm not getting a break because they've got a better accountant. It would put more faith in the tax system. Uh, also, it would make it easier for people pretty much to understand the tax system, which most people people don't. So uh, that's something that, again, not unique with me. That's um, a long-time recommendation of many, many people. Others take the opposite approach and say, well, we need those deductions and exemptions in there because we want to use the tax system to motivate people to spend their money including businesses in a certain way. So you've got a conflict there between people, uh, people's views of what's the role of government. Is the role of government to do certain limited functions or is their role bigger in order to move the economy and get, move people's uh, expenditures in one way or the other? Yeah, that last point that you made uh, sort of uh, goes against what we would call a tax loophole because the government is requiring in order for people to get that deduction, requiring mm -hmm. people to do something yeah. uh, that uh, in the wisdom of the Congress, uh, they thought perhaps was well worth the tax savings to the individual. Yeah, I'll give you a real quick example, and I don't want to offend any of my friends in the home building market, but if you buy a home, you get a big deduction there if you buy it on time through a mortgage. You don't get a comparable deduction if you rent. So some say, hey, that's that's clearly not not fair. And I think the the idea there when that was first put in, at least by some, was we want people to own property, that we want people to own their home because it makes them, this was the comment years ago, better citizens. They they have a stake in the community. But so that's that's a that's a so-called loophole, if you will, or a deduction that that some would applaud and some would say, hey, no, that's not fair. It's just because I want to rent. I should I should have some something that compensates me on the tax side, just like the homebuyer does. So all these things come down to how you view 
what government should do, what government should promote, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of programs government should have. Uh, they all get much more complicated when you sort of look under the hood. Well, someone sent me a list not so long ago of all the taxes that we pay now that did not exist 50 years ago at all. And some way or another, the federal government was able to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, I think the uh, federal tax code is uh, runs in the thousands of pages. And I, I'm one who would like to go to a simpler kind of tax system that most people could understand. I think that would be enormously beneficial. Well, there have been a lot of suggestions of ways to do that, uh, but uh, none of them have ever seemed to get any legs and uh, uh, cause people to say, this is what I want. How big an issue, and we've got about uh, 15 seconds for this answer, (laughs) how big an issue do you think this will be in the upcoming election, the debt ceiling matter? Oh, I think it'll come up and I think it'll be be used uh, by both sides. One will say, hey, the president will say, hey, I got a deal. Uh, and I didn't have to compromise much. The uh, opponent will probably say, hey, this is an example where the federal government's spending too much. So, yeah, it'll certainly come up. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden, and uh, we will be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers where we'll talk about the I word inflation and the R word recession and uh, a lot of other things as well with Dr. Walden. We'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, What? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Dr. Mike Walden, the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor Emeritus at North Carolina State University and a person who is generally considered the, the, uh, the, the source that so many people turn to in North Carolina for a look at the economy. Well, we're hearing a lot about the word inflation, and that is a fact. And we're hearing a lot of words, uh, another word mentioned, recession, and I'm not sure as of yet that that's a fact. So I'd like your observations on those two words, inflation and recession. Certainly, probably that the key two words when people, when I, I still do a lot of talks on the groups, et cetera, and um, uh, those are still the two key topics that people are concerned about, rightly so. Uh, the information on inflation is it's getting better. 
uh, about a year ago, or no, actually precisely a year ago, the year-over-year inflation rate was 9.1%, meaning prices in average prices in June of 2022 were 9.1% higher than they were in June of 2021. Right now, uh, the latest inflation reading shows that that prices are still going up, but now they're going up a slower pace of about 4.9%. Uh, next week, it's either next week or the following week, we will get the uh, May inflation number. So it looks like it's getting better. And again, when I say this, I certainly want people to remember that when you hear, when everyone hears a report that says, hey, the inflation is inflation's down, it's getting better. That doesn't mean prices are going down. It just means they're going up slower. And and really the goal of uh, the Federal Reserve, which is really the, the, the arm of the government behind all this effort to curtail inflation, is to get us to a point where we were pre, pre-COVID, where prices were going up, but they were going up at a very modest uh, 2%. Um, so we are making, we are seeing progress. Um, Federal Reserve, as I said, is really behind this, what they have been doing, and I think people know this. Federal Reserve is taking interest rates much higher. In fact, their key interest rate, Don, uh, about a year and a half ago was 0%. Uh, that was why mortgage rates were very low at under 3%. Uh, credit card rates were much lower, et cetera. Since then, the Federal Reserve has taken their key rate up to 5%. That's why all these other rates have been going up. And, and their intent is not necessarily to cause a recession, but to cause people to sort of slow down in their spending take the pressure off of prices. And and one good thing that's been going on, Don, and this does affect the inflation rate, is you remember during COVID, you heard a lot about the supply chain problems where we just couldn't get products to buy because there were problems all along the the route of getting a product from its its start to showing up in a shelf. Those are largely fixed. Um, So uh, you will hear some say that, oh, yeah, this product, that product, I can't get it as rapidly as I want. But mostly supply chains are fixed. In fact, what we're reading now is a lot of businesses have ample inventory, in fact, maybe too much inventory. So that's that's good news because that helps keep keep prices uh, lower. Now, right now, we've got the Federal Reserve. They meet about every six weeks. They're going to be meeting again, um, I think, in two weeks. Uh, the thought is they may take a pause in raising interest rates uh, because there's been so much progress on inflation. But um, uh, we will see. We will see. They they can, can surprise us. Well, let's turn to that other word, the R word, recession. Well, they're they're really tied together. If you go back and, and look at economic history, uh, pretty much the majority of times, Don, when we have a recession, it's because the recession was preceded by high inflation, inflation that was too high. And so again, what happens is the Federal Reserve steps in. They're sort of like the, uh, this is not an analogy original with me, but it's sort of like the thing of the Federal Reserve as a chaperone at a party. And the the Federal Reserve, when they raise interest rates, they're sort of taking the the punch pull back, the spike punch pull back, because they want people to sort of calm down. Uh, They've gotten too unruly. And that's what the Federal Reserve has been doing over about the last uh, 18 months. As I said, they've been raising interest rates. Again, if you look in history, that's that raises always the specter of, hey, the economy slows down so much that we do go backwards, which is the non-technical term of a recession. The, the interesting thing right now, and economists find this interesting, I think, for business people and others who have to make decisions on where the economy is going, it's a very it's very difficult is that we're getting mixed signals, Don. Uh, if you look, for example, at um, 
um, some of the indicators like commodity prices or or the, the comparison of long-term interest rates to short-term interest rates or manufacturing some parts of the real estate market like commercial real estate, things have slowed down quite a bit. And if you just focused on those items I just mentioned, you'd probably say, yeah, boy, how it looks like we're headed for a recession. But if you go to other parts of the economy, mainly the labor market, gosh, <laughs> we're still adding jobs at, at good paces. Uh, last month, May was a good, a good uh, example. Uh, we had nationally 339,000 jobs added. That was about twice what the analysts were expecting. Uh, we have yet to see, I believe I'm right in this, since the COVID was over, or most of COVID was over, we've yet to see a month where prices, oh, I'm sorry, where employment actually went down. Now, last month, we did have a little bit of a spike in, in the unemployment rate, still very, very low, but it went from 33 to 3.7%. But if you if you pour through the data, that's because people are starting to come back into the job market. Uh, our labor, what's called labor force participation rate, is almost back to where it was pre-COVID, and sometimes it takes time when people enter the labor market to, to get a job. So the labor market is still strong, and that's what's really causing economists like myself to to scratch our head. There's not as much hair there when I where, when I used to scratch it, but. But uh, the, the, the latest survey that I've seen of economists shows that now less than 50% of them uh, think there's going to be a recession within the, within the year. Whereas if you went back to that same survey last January, January of this year, over 50% thought there was going to be a recession. So uh, we may be looking at something unique here, but clearly uh, we're getting mixed signals because part of the economy looks like it's doing very, very well. There are other parts of the economy where there are issues. And it would appear to me that uh, the recession would be very uneven, even if we have one, because there's so much construction going on that can't stop uh, mm -hmm. in, in the larger markets like Raleigh and Charlotte and Greensboro. Uh, so those areas would appear to me, to me, and I'm really asking this in the form of a question, a little bit more recession proof than some of the other areas. Yeah, well, North Carolina, because uh, we, we've been growing uh, at a rapid pace for, for a couple decades, and then if you bore down to the metros in North Carolina, you mentioned obviously the Triangle in Charlotte, but areas like Wilmington and Asheville, and yes, Greenville's really coming on. Uh, they, they are, they've taken that, up, that growth up a notch. Yes, I, I think that I wouldn't call uh, the, the metros in North Carolina recession proof, but but in my mind, I think certainly if we did have an official national recession, it would be very 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 modest in those areas that you that you've mentioned. And again, that's the the benefit of being a growing community, of being an attractive community. I mean, if you look at Raleigh, usually Raleigh, but also sometimes Charlotte, way up in the rankings in terms of best places to start a business. Um, business recruiting in North Carolina is still still very very robust. Um, but again, if we do if we do have an official recession, I mean we'll feel we'll feel it in in Raleigh in in some ways, but certainly not as devastating as uh, in in other parts of the other parts of the country. Uh, I do a, what's called a leading indicator for for North Carolina. I put that every month, and my my indicator has actually been going down since last May. 
which doesn't necessarily mean a recession, but it means slower growth in North Carolina. And that could be one outcome here, Don. In fact, I think it would be the best outcome that we don't have a recession, but we have slower, th things are improving, but at a slower pace, maybe we have a little bit of an increase in unemployment from, from 3%, maybe to four or four and a half percent, still very, very low. So that's probably the best forecast I would give at this time that, yeah, we're, we're gonna have something that maybe looks like a recession, feels like a recession, but it's very, very modest and won't last very long. One of the things that I hear a lot of people talking about because of COVID and uh, the, the uh, practice that a number of people are still utilizing, and that is working at home, mm -hmm. the commercial real estate, especially office space, may be uh, sort of a bubble. But yeah. yet I still see, as you ride around Raleigh and Charlotte, commercial buildings under construction. Yeah. Uh, what's the story there? Which one's right? And in fact, you may have noticed in today's paper, I think the Raleigh City Council approved 40-story towers in an area around the convention center downtown Raleigh. 40 stories. I mean, you can build up to 40 stories. Uh, well, I think this is all about the fact of what we were talking about before. These are just booming areas. You're, you're hard-pressed to find a metropolitan area, particularly of the size of, of the Triangle and Charlotte, that have been growing more and more. Uh, people still want to come here, and investors like people who are investing in commercial buildings know that's going to mean more economic activity. That's going to mean more businesses coming in. Apple, just for example, um, I saw today somewhere in the news that they um, um, solidified their their building that they're going to be putting in in RTP. Um, so it's just the reason here that we are uh, we, we are such a growing area. Now, if you talk about commercial real estate in say New York City or Chicago. Uh, different matter. Uh, there are people worried in New York City about what are we going to do with these commercial spaces. I, I've read that there are many um, owners of those commercial spaces or those office towers who are now converting part of them, at least, to residences and, and sort of trying to develop these live, work, play areas. So I think it does depend geographically where you are. Uh, California, same thing. Los Angeles, gosh, San Francisco is having big, big problems in terms of people moving out. But we're lucky to be in a place that um, great climate, uh, great opportunities, uh, great universities, great schools, great people here um, um, that people want to move to. On a negative note, I have read that uh, where we do have layoffs, it's usually in the high tech or large industry area. Well, uh, yes, and that that's a little miss. Uh, I mean, you're, you're true. That's an accurate statement. But I think any, what I tell people, take a long run view of what's happening in technology. Technology, the tech sector, so-called, really benefited from the pandemic. I mean, look at what we're doing with Zoom and and uh, remote work and, and other things. And uh, that sector exploded during the pandemic with employees. Uh, in fact, I think the average uh, tech company increased, or the sector as a whole, I should say, increased employment from 2019 to mid-2022 by about 200%. I think what's going on now over the last roughly year is they realize, those companies realized, hey, with some questions about the future economy, we overshot. So, the, yeah, there, there are some layoffs there, uh, but the sector is still much, much bigger than it was pre-pandemic. And interesting, Don, if you look at the, where people are going in terms of jobs, yes, 
we're losing, well, maybe not North Carolina losing jobs in tech, but certainly slowed down. Uh, look at, however, sectors that had, were very, very tough to find people to work uh, when we got out of COVID, uh, sectors like uh, restaurants, uh, hotels, other leisure time activities, personal services, uh, government jobs. Those have actually been adding uh, people at very healthy paces over the last couple of, uh, of, of months, um, actually a year. So I think what's happening there, Don, is actually some of the people who jumped to tech, and now that tech is is cutting some people, some of those are maybe going back to jobs that they perhaps could have held in, say, restaurants. And uh, and, and remember, with technology, about 40% of people have to have advanced degrees. The rest don't need advanced degrees. And um, uh, some are going back to government, some are going back to personal services. So the way I look at this, it's almost like we're, we're moving faster and faster back to the kind of economy we had pre-pandemic. Great time to take a break. Dr. Mike Walden is with us on Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll be back right after these messages with much more. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Excuse me, I know you have a nine o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me. Get granular. Keep me in the pipeline. But nada. Nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me, and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So, I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume, and I absolutely crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Dr. Mike Walden, and uh, we have discussed a number of things already uh, uh, with regards to the economy. We've talked about the debt ceiling deal, and we've also talked about uh, inflation and recession and a general outlook of how things are shaping up in North Carolina. I'd like to move to sort of the international front right now for just a moment. Uh, what effect is the Ukraine war, the Ukraine-Russian war, going to have on not only the economy there, the economy in Russia, and uh, all this these huge amounts of money that the Western allies are pouring into that war effort. How will that affect the way that those companies operate and how it will affect their tax situation? Well, you mean countries? I mean, yes, yes, countries. Yeah, Um, Well, they're both going to be devastated if this war ever ends. I mean, both Russia, (laughs) Russia, I'm certainly no military strategist, but, um, uh, I'm sure Russia miscalculated on this. They thought they were going to roll over Ukraine in a matter of days, and 
and now they're back on their heels and uh, massive losses and 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 people. Uh, Russia is now getting hit by drones. Uh, Ukraine denies that they're from Ukraine, but my guess would be they are. Um, if this war ever ends, um, Russia is going to be in a hard place to rebuild their economy. They'll probably be more dependent upon China. And Ukraine will have to rebuild, but my guess is they'll get a lot of help from the West to do that. Um, I think the um, most immediate impact still is in the energy markets. Um, we have a lot of sanctions on Russia, but that has not prohibited Russia from uh, selling oil. They're actually selling more oil than they did before. And you may have noticed, or people, your listeners may have noticed, the Saudis uh, just a couple of days ago said, you know what, we're going to cut production again because they don't like where prices are. You know, oil prices are much, much lower than they than they had been, which affects the revenues the Saudis have. So that could mean higher prices here uh, over the summer driving season for gas if the Saudis follow through on their cuts. So we're still being impact, impacted indirectly uh, in the energy markets in particular. Uh, some of the food markets are impacted because uh, Ukraine especially was a big grain producer. I think they're still having some issues getting grain out of uh, out of Ukraine. But I think long term, uh, if this war ever ends, there's obviously going to be probably geopolitically, uh, Russia will be much, much reduced as a power. Uh, Ukraine, if, if they win, uh, will they will be enhanced. Uh, the one thing, of course, everyone worries about, will, will Russia give in willingly? Will they negotiate or will they resort to the ultimate fear? And that is to use nuclear weapons. Well, it's going to be certainly interesting to watch and clearly a miscalculation on behalf of Russia, because as you said, they were expecting this to be over in a very short period of time. And of course, now, not only is it appearing that it's not going to end very soon, but it appears they may actually lose. And yeah. that is certainly not what they anticipated. So we'll have to watch that. Uh, let's talk about the housing market here in the United States. Uh, uh, with uh, mortgage rates sliding up uh, somewhat, uh, or not somewhat, a good bit. Uh, how do you view the housing market for the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, I think in 12 to 18 months, it'll be much, much better for, for buyers. I think in 12 to 18 months, whatever we're going to endure in terms of a slowdown or an outright recession will be over. I think in 12 to 18 months, Don, the Federal Reserve will have been probably pushing interest rates down for several months. So I, I think that with that time horizon, I think we'll see a housing market much, much more back to a level where activity, especially in this market, in the Raleigh market, in the metro markets, uh, the activity will be much higher. Uh, housing, uh, buying houses will be more affordable. Then the problem will become what we sort of saw before um, things slowed down, that is housing prices starting to go back. We actually had a couple of months, I think, I mean, it was either one or two months recently where the average house price actually went down. That's because people were not buying and then supply is still coming on. So I think in 12 to 18 months, and this is what I've been telling people, uh, acquaintances or friends or whomever who've said, you know, I really, we, my family and I, our household and I, we really need to buy a house. We don't want to do it now with the interest rates where they are. Can you tell me when might be the optimal time? Well, certainly don't have a perfect crystal ball, but I think six months to a year from now, we'll be on the other side of whatever is going to happen. And I think the Federal Reserve will raise lowered interest rates. And I think what people need to do, as soon as those rates come down to a level that makes sense for them, whether it be 5% or 4%, I wouldn't get greedy and wait and, and hope they're going to go down to under three. 
as soon as that happens, jump on it because at some point, especially if you're in one of the roaring metro markets in North Carolina, people will get back on the housing market. That'll put upward pressure on prices. So what you want to try to do is time your purchase where you're taking, where you're getting the best combination of the interest rate and the price of the house. Another topic that has been in the news for almost, well, 18 months or so now, is this matter of student debt and mm -hmm. debt forgiveness. Where do we stand on that? Well, uh, the the um, the House and the Senate actually both passed a bill saying that President Biden's plan. Uh, they they were they were voting against that. Uh, President Biden just recently, maybe it was the other day, vetoed that bill. So my guess is that uh, it's going to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to rule on whether President Biden had the ability to, um, and I don't know, if forgive is the right word. Um, to, to wipe away uh, that debt, or uh, I think the, the constitutional people say, uh, or is that in the bailiwick of the Congress? Since Congress is the one appropriates money, presidents uh, spend the money and manage the money, but they don't they don't appropriate money. So uh, the, the 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 legal people that I follow, and this is obviously not my bailiwick, uh, seems to be the consensus is the Supreme Court will say, President Biden, you can't do that. If you if you want to wipe away student debt, it has to go through the Congress. The Congress has to pass bills to do that. You can certainly sign them or veto it, but you can't you can't just do it on your own. Well, another uh, thing that I guess everybody is concerned about is uh, uh, interest rates on mortgages, but also interest rates on personal loans and business loans. Uh, they are up and. Uh, um, but still well under where they have been in the past to some degree, because as you and I know, at one point in time, we were paying interest rates as high as 12 to 15 percent. Yeah, this is where this is where a person's age shows, Don, like yes. you and me versus maybe Jason, although I know Jason's aware of things very much. But uh, yeah, I've had several conversations with young people that I see when I go to the gym, I go to the Y in the morning. And I interact with a lot of young people, people in their 20s or 30s. And, and I've had conversations with, in fact, one gentleman I know who, I guess it was about six months ago, he was ready to buy his house. And he said, Mike, this is this is crazy. We have to pay 6 7% for a mortgage. Has it ever been that high? And I said, oh, yeah, it's been high. I said, uh, when my wife and I were starting to look for a house some almost 50 years ago in, in Raleigh, the mortgage rates were up near 17%. And he thought I was joking. He said, oh, you, they can't be that high. Never were that high. Come on, quit pulling my leg. And I said, no, look it up. <laughs> so yeah, it's all it's all a perspective. Um, I think the first mortgage I took out, we were, I think we, all, we, didn't, we didn't buy it at 17%, but I think it was around 10%. So uh, it could always be worse. I mean, this is a good example, Don, of where what you think is good or bad is depends on your perspective. And the longer you live, <laughs> the your perspective gets longer. So anyway, um, yeah, rates are 30 year fixed rates around 7% now. Again, as I said earlier, they were below 3% uh, certainly 18 months ago. I, I think um, I think we may be near the peak though on those 7% rates. And as I said, said in response to your question, few minutes ago, I think a year from now, certainly 18 months from now, they will be under 7%. I'm going to switch uh, and talk a little bit about the Social Security system. That sort of creeps in and out of the news over yep. and has for years about how secure it is, when it's going to run out of money and all that sort of thing. And uh, 
uh, it just depends on how close we are to to a problem, I guess, is how Congress looks at it. Mm-hmm. How do you look at it? Well, Social Security is not going to run out of money because there are people paying in. But the question is, is the better question is, will Social Security be able to pay what it's promised people that they were going to pay? I mean, you can go online and look up, given your age and your income, you can find out, in fact, Social Security will do it for you. They'll send you an estimate of when you retire. This is what you're going to get. Um, the latest estimate is that I think it's either 2032 or 2033. That'll be the year. It's one of the two. I can't remember which one. But one of the one of those will be the year when Social Security will find it cannot meet those promises. It'll still have money coming in, but it won't have enough money coming in to meet those promises. Uh, and I think the estimate is that something maybe maybe your Social Security payment would be seventy five percent. I mean, I'm, don't don't hold this, this to me exactly, but it's around this. Uh, at that point, Social Security will still pay retirees, but it'll maybe be seventy five percent of what they were promised they would pay. So yeah, there's a problem, and we know there's a problem. In fact, we've known there's going to be a problem for years. Uh, this is where you got to follow some politics here and making choices on how to fix Social Security. That, it's tough. There are no easy answers. You either raise Social Security taxes more, not maybe not on everyone, or you make some adjustments in when you can get Social Security. But someone's going to yell and scream, whatever this the solution is. And if you're an elected official, you don't like to hear people yell and scream at you. So. Uh, if you look in, in t- back in time, usually these things do get fixed, but they're not fixed years ahead of time. They're sort of fixed at the last minute. The best example of this was in the early 80s. We had the same, all, the exact same situation. Social Security was not going to be able to made its, make its promises payments. And this was during the Reagan administration. Reagan set up a commission headed by then Alan Greenspan. This was before he was Fed chair. And they had labor people, you had Democrats, you had Republicans, and they worked out a deal. Actually, we're still working off of that deal, and it was fixed for a short period of time. But now we've got to do it again. So my prediction, Don, is whomever's president, say around 2029 or 2030, uh, they will at some point set up a commission and say, we've got to get a commission together because we've got to make changes to Social Security. And something will be done. It's kind of like what my predicted with the debt ceiling. Yeah, you know, they, they would have a deal. We'll have a deal on Social Security. It's just not going to be anytime soon because politicians don't want to take that heat that soon unless they, unless they have to. There are times when politicians love the term, kick the can down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens. Uh... And, you know, we have another, I don't know if you were going to go here. We have a, a similar issue with, um, with Medicare, especially. Uh, Medicare has gets its own separate tax receipts also, and um, we have the same situation, that Medicare is going to run out of, of enough money to meet all of their obligations. So that'll have to be fixed also. And of course, you see something common here, don't you, Don? The Medicare and Social Security go to older people, and we are still seeing that baby boom generation. I'm part of that. Uh, we're getting into our 70s. I'm there and, and even older, and uh, they're expanding, and they're taking making use of these programs. And so both of them are going to have to be dealt with Medicare as well as social security. Well, uh, that of course is a part of the problem. People are living longer, healthier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course that, uh, comes back to perhaps one of the ways to solve the thing is to move the retirement age back somewhat. 
uh, I would suggest that they probably need to start hinting that that might happen now so that people can begin to plan. But people are healthier. And uh, many, uh, of course, I think there are more people working after 65 now than ever before. I'm guessing I I look around and at least I see a lot of my friends who are in that age group uh, still working. Of course, if you if you raise the retirement age, you you run the risk of you get what's happening in France, where Macron raised it or wants to raise it from sixty to sixty two, and you have I think they just started rioting again the other day. So <laughs> I don't think we would do that. Hopefully not. But uh, yeah, even something as simple as that, where it makes logical sense, and I think it does make logical sense, there will be a large number of people who push back. Yeah. Well. You can't, uh, you can't, certainly can't please everybody when you have a problem like uh, both of those, uh, those uh, funding uh, uh, models are. Uh, somebody's going to have to pay. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden, and uh, we will be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. We want to talk about the stock market. We've never talked about the stock market with Dr. Walden, I don't believe, but we'll do that when we come back. You stay tuned. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Climb puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with a a very frequent guest on our program, Dr. Mike Walden, who makes understand the economy and all aspects of the economy very interesting and uh, puts it in terms that even I can understand it. And uh, I hope I'm asking the questions that the listeners want to know about. And one of them, I guess, uh, in this period of time of inflation and recession, and talk of those two uh, issues affecting the economy. The stock market, of course, reacts to all of this. So when uh, when will we see the stock market begin to, to stabilize and perhaps start a climb back up? Well, it has been trending up, Don. In fact, I, I looked the other day because I was doing an article. I do a biweekly column, and I needed to look at what the stock market's done over the last year. It's actually the Dow's 1,000 points higher than it was a year ago. Um, yeah, we had some dips down before the debt ceiling was was uh, agreed to. Uh, it's up today, so uh, it all. But it all depends. Um, uh, the stock. I, I tell people the stock market. It, what the stock market does on any given day, it's like a daily vote. 
on the economy. People are voting with their money and they're they're voting in part. Now, you know, there there are obviously effects from individual companies and inventions and innovations, but overall, if you look at the overall stock market, it usually goes up when people are optimistic about the future economy. They think there's going to be growth. It goes down or it wobbles when you have the opposite. And and right now, Don, as we, we talked, I think when we started the program, we've got mixed signals on where the economy is going. And I think that's why you're seeing so much volatility from day to day, because people are reading the tea leaves and there are tea, different tea leaves that are out there that they're reading. Um, I um, don't profess uh, and have never tried to um, predict where the stock market is going. I'm one of those people who has a certain percentage of our my, Mary and my portfolio in the stock market. We, we don't try to outguess the stock market. Um, and we just we invest in a broad category of stocks and, and, and sort of let things ride. Uh, that's one particular philosophy. Others others like to gamble, if you will, in the stock market. I certainly wouldn't dissuade that, but I would tell people don't gamble with all of your money. Take to a percentage of that that you can afford to afford to lose. Um, I think the outlook for the economy since the last time we talked has has improved. If we do have a recession, I think it'll be very, very mild. So that's beneficial for the stock market. I think the stock market has been very happy that the inflation, the inflation rate has been moderated. And they, they think the Federal Reserve maybe will be done raising interest rates. So I would say from from our my vantage, the vantage point right now, I would say over the next uh, several months, um, stock market will be uh, probably moving more on more days moving up than moving down. And I certainly think uh, you gave me that uh, time horizon, which I loved on of, of, of 12 to 18 months. I certainly think in, think in 12 to 18 months, the market will be higher than that it is, than it is now. So uh, a lot of exciting things going on in the economy, uh, a lot of issues. Stock market tries to absorb all this. And when I say stock market, it makes it sound like there's one entity there. I mean, there are obviously millions of people who invest in the stock market. So what it does on any given day is the conglomeration of all that. So um, um, stock market never goes in one direction every time. But I think the long-term trend, long-term using your outline outlook on 12 to 18 months, I think is going to be positive. Another thing that's been in the news uh, on the business page, especially, has been the health of the banking industry. Mm-hmm. Um, would you comment on that? I think overall it's very healthy. Now, we did have uh, a couple, two, three banks that failed. And, of course, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the big one. I think there are a lot of questions there about management, about oversight. Uh, of course, we know why they failed, because they invested a lot of their money in Treasury securities. And now that interest rates are up, Treasury securities are worth less. But we, we fortunately would not see that spread. There was not a wide, widespread panic, if you will. Uh, nothing like we had in 2000, uh, 2007, 2008, and, and, and nine. Um And of course, First Citizens Bank here in North Carolina really benefited because they swooped in and bought uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which I think was a very, very astute move to them. Uh, uh, there is some concern about banking consolidation, but we do have uh, thousands, several thousands of banks still in the country. Uh, there's some worries about, uh, I think, um, uh, JP Morgan is is uh, is the largest bank now and its, uh, its market share has grown. So there are always going to be issues about that. But I think in general, the banking se- sector is, is, is sound. 
Uh, we've got backstops. We saw that those bank stops work with work with Silicon Valley Bank, and the, I think it was the other two that that uh, that essentially failed. So um, yeah, I don't I don't see any um, I don't see any big uh, red flags uh, waving in the future to to worry about the banking system. We talked just a little about the international market, but we were talking about it in reference to. Uh, the support and the expense of the Ukraine-Russian war. Uh, other than that, uh, tell us uh, what countries are in good shape, what countries have problems, and how might those that are having success and those who are having problems affect us here in the United States? Well, I, I think the big issue, at least the one that I'm concerned about uh, in, in the international markets, uh, again, centers around China. I mean, China is really the focus of our concerns about uh, international affairs in terms of Taiwan, but also in terms of, of the national of our international economy. What I'm going to be very interested to track, Don, over the next several years is to what extent do we want to, and if we do want to, if we're successful, to pull back from China in terms of a, of a trading partner. I mean, people know that a lot of what we buy, especially manufactured goods, come from China or um, several other countries in the in the uh, in the in Southeast Asia. Um, China appears not to be really our friend. They're being they're becoming very much more belligerent, and uh, especially over Taiwan. Uh, there's an argument that can be made as, hey, we really financed all this because we bought we bought so much more from China over the last several decades as we've as we've uh, sent to them. And, and I think there is a move to it's now called reshoring of trying to move some of those industries and some of those companies that may be located outside our country back. Uh, the Biden administration is, is promoting that. The, the CHIPS Act, for example, was was part of that. So I, for me, that's the big issue. And it's really a combination of issues because it's both economic and, and military or diplomatically with China. But for me, it's it's really the center of China. One one solution that some have said is if we're worried about, well, heck, our costs are too high here, we're going to be consumers regularly supple, is maybe can we shift some of that overseas production from countries like China to countries that are more favorable to us? And, and the one big one in, in the Southeast Asia, I guess you'd call it, would be India. So there's been some talk I've read about in the tech sector about companies, tech companies maybe looking at India uh, as maybe where they could base their operations rather than China. But remember, it's 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 easy to say to a company uh, or corporation, hey, move your operations out of China somewhere else. It's much more difficult to, to do because it's you don't you don't accomplish that overnight. You just don't pick up and shut down. And, and leave overnight. It's uh, you've got supply chains there, you've got labor there, you've got infrastructure there. It's a it's a very very difficult and time consuming and costly process. But anyway, that's that's what I'll be looking at over the next several years. How our relationships, both economic as well as diplomatic, with China work out. Well, another problem that China has is it would appear that Russia is headed toward being perhaps more of a puppet of China are more responsible to China and more reliant on China than perhaps China wants them to be. Well, yeah, I mean, that's outside my lane, but you know, I worry about, uh, I mean, again, when you, when you talk about these large countries, what you come back and ultimately worry about are nuclear weapons. 
even if even if Russia is defeated in the Ukraine war, they still got massive numbers of nuclear weapons. China has nuclear weapons. North Korea has nuclear weapons. Uh, so that's that's ultimately what you what you worry about. Uh, Russia may come out of the may come out of this a devastated country, but boy, they they still got power to create destruction. And 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 I'm not sure. I don't know enough about international affairs to say is it better to have Russia an independent Russia. Uh, controlling their nuclear weapons, or is it is it worse? And is it worse to have a Russia that is is married to, if you will, China and China calling the shots? Because right now it appears we're at loggerheads uh, with China over some over several issues, particularly who's going to dominate um, uh, Southeast Asia and and whether Taiwan is going to continue to exist as an independent country. Well, it's uh, of course this has been going on for a long, long time, and our relations with China seem to be more like a roller coaster. Sometimes we seem like we're on a path to uh, considering them a real ally, and then uh, at times it just reverts back to uh, the the problems that we've had in the past. Well, uh, just uh, we've got about two minutes left, so how about sort of doing uh, a two minute summary? of what people ought to be looking for uh, as signs of where we're going on all these issues we've talked about, the debt ceiling, the inflation, the recession, the housing market, uh, student loan uh, forgiveness, and so forth. I think uh, the inflation situation, I think, will continue to get better. It doesn't mean prices are going down, but they'll be going up uh, less severely. So that that's a plus. Uh, I think that'll allow more people to get their head above water in terms of seeing their wage gains outrun price increases. But it'll take a while for people to get back to where we were in terms of um, prices versus incomes. Um, I think that um, I, I would keep my eye, I would watch the labor market in terms of signs for uh, that you're going to smile at versus frown at. If we get to a situation, Don, where we start to see Rather than jobs being created, jobs being cut uh, in aggregate, uh, that that'll be a sign that yes, we probably are headed for a normal, a bona fide recession. Uh, so so certainly watch that. And in the same hand, watch the Federal Reserve. Um, Federal Reserve will be meeting in a couple weeks. Um, I don't expect people to read all the minutes like I do, but you get the headlines. What did they do about interest rates? And what do they say about what they're going to do about interest rates in the future? That's that's certainly going to be that's certainly going to be the key. Um, I think if you obviously we all live here in North Carolina, uh, certainly try to keep track of what's going on locally in North Carolina. We're still getting businesses come here. We're still getting we're still having businesses hire. Uh, we still get excellent ratings when we're compared to other states. So that would all tell me that this is still going to be a state that's going to continue to grow. And uh, prosperity is going to be uh, expanded. One of my one of my uh, hopes, Don, over the over the next several years, is that we see that prosperity get out to more of our counties. I've been doing some work on what I call the down east counties, uh, uh, nine counties that are uh, a center of agriculture in southeast North Carolina. And all of the ones I've looked at is they have seen population declines over the last ten years. So hopefully, that's something we could see turn around. You've left me with just enough time to thank you very much for being with us. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. And uh, hear the entire broadcast or selected sections. 
We'll be back again next week. So the next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.